0: section four of tin horns and calico by henry christman this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter four they could not stand idle an off-year election in november eighteen forty-one destroyed seward's control over the legislature and unseated many upstate representatives on whom the anti-renters were pinning their hopes in eighteen forty two the new legislature named a special grievance committee to hear the tenants petitions but before it could accomplish anything stephen van rensselaer engineered the transfer of the whole subject to the conservative judiciary committee while ostensibly the switch was made to get a ruling on what relief was possible in reality it was to bring the issue before a committee whose report the landlords could dictate SEWARD WAS HELPLESS, AND THE FRIENDS OF CONSERVATIVISM PROMPTLY REPORTED THAT THE STATE WAS WITHOUT ANY POWER TO GRANT RELIEF. THE COMMITTEE FULLY APPRECIATED THE BURDENS AND INCONVENIENCES OF THE TENURES, AND WERE AWARE THAT THEY WERE INCONSISTENT WITH THE TRUE AMERICAN SYSTEM OF OWNING ONE'S OWN LAND. HAPPILY, HOWEVER, TIME WILL CURE THE EVIL. Such estates, under the all-prevailing influence of our institutions, will in a few years be gradually worn away, and these lands will finally be held in fee. The hard-headed farmers took this optimistic statement to mean that if they were good tenants and paid their rent, some day a Van Rensselaer might be converted to American ways and agree to sell. Anti-rentism staggered under the blow let a purse-pampered aristocrat or some company knock at the door and they are at once admitted one embittered tenant complained we want you they say to grant us a privilege to run a railroad from albany to boston oh yes yes this is constitutional the hole in the constitution is large enough to throw a bull through the democrats professed political heirs of jefferson and jackson seemed to have absorbed alexander hamilton's philosophy that government was sound only when it bulwarked business and wealth but in order to fend off the political threat of a strong farm movement they loudly simulated regret that the eighteen forty two report written by their own committee made legislative relief impossible given this temporary advantage stephen van rensselaer renewed his pressure for rent collection and shrewdly indicated his willingness to compromise with individuals many tenants were so disorganized at this point that they were ready to acknowledge defeat and capitulate on the best terms possible that the whole movement did not break up beginning and ending with the rebellion in the helderbergs was due to the presence of a few strong hard-willed men who were determined to see justice done whatever the cost the anti-rent contingents had never been made up exclusively of the ignorant big breech dutchmen pictured by the metropolitan press they were plain hard-working people some were illiterate but among them were men of education and outstanding character also more and more able and respected professional men living in the manor towns were being drawn into the ranks even though they were not leaseholders doctors particularly were becoming a real menace to landlord security their medical practice carried them all over the back country roads on horseback or in a leathern spring gig winter and summer men of their education and high idealism knowing at first hand the problems of the hill people could not let the struggle die for lack of leadership one of the doctors who thus kept the power of resistance alive was frederick crowns a country practitioner in his middle thirties who lived under the mountain in Gilderberg township and had patients all over the Helderbergs. as it became increasingly obvious that time alone would not cure the evils of the feudal tenures dr crowns's calls became less and less exclusively professional seated astride a chair his hands gripping the back he would talk earnestly about democratic principles and convince the farmers of their social obligation to unite against the inequities of the leases on the other side of the hudson in alps a little village in rensselaer county lived another doctor who was destined to become even more important than crowns to the anti-rent movement his name was smith a bouton warm-hearted romantic and generous by nature dr bouton had his headquarters at his home where he pulled a tooth for a quarter set an arm for fifty cents and received urgent calls that took him back into the hills to deliver an infant for three dollars or joust with death for a pittance alps was situated in a valley between bailey mountain and pikes hill it was a picturesque spot with broad pastures running up to high walls of pine hemlock birch and maple but the mountain beauty only sharpened by contrast the suffering the young doctor saw among his neighbors the village offered little community life and not much social intercourse beyond the walls of griggs tavern yet wherever dr bouton went he preached resistance to william p van rensselaer for he felt that the amiable disposition of the younger brother did not make the east manor leases any less binding nor any more acceptable to men of spirit smith boughton was not the first insurgent in his family back of him was a long line of french huguenots calling themselves variously bouton and bouton who had battled as reformers down through the years and finally fled the religious oppression of seventeenth-century burgundy His father and two uncles were among the Yankee troublemakers who fought in the Revolution. One uncle starved to death on a British prison-ship in New York Harbor. Having no money at the end of the war, his father, Azor, and William, the other uncle, settled on leasehold farms in Rensselaer County, where Smith was born on September first, 1810. Shortly afterward, Azor moved to the West Manor, where the boy grew up from childhood he was faced with contradictions in the american idyll until he was sent away to school in washington county at sixteen he had helped his father harvest the rent from their lean acres each year he saw Azor Boughton drive off toward albany with his load of wheat to ransom his right to live on the land and cultivate it at middlebury college in vermont where he entered medical school at eighteen he made his first effort to right what he felt to be a wrong. The college was under denominational control, and students were required to attend the prescribed church. But Smith reasoned that the college had no more right than the government to impose religious tenets. He led 48 students in a march on the college authorities, and argued the case so convincingly that religious compulsion was abandoned after receiving his degree in eighteen thirty one the young doctor practised under the aegis of an older physician in saratoga springs until he was sent to new york city by a group of doctors to study cholera which was raging at the time on his return he opened an office in the frontier village of glens falls in warren county but two years later restless and reluctant to settle down he moved to delhi in the western catskills here again he came face to face with the oppressive fruits of landlordism which he had known as a boy for most of delaware county was held under semi-feudal leases in the fall of eighteen thirty seven he joined the patriots war in canada led by louis papineau speaker of the lower house of the canadian parliament and William Lyon Mackenzie, a Canadian journalist. The Governor-General of Canada was surrounded by a corrupt ruling clique, and reform was impossible because the Upper House, appointed by the Governor, had power to negate the acts of the Lower House elected by the people. The Patriots, as the Reformers called themselves, held a convention in Toronto, set up a provisional republic, and called upon the people to cast off the yoke of England zealous to help dr Boughton went secretly to canada his company engaged the royal forces from montreal but after quite a smart skirmish papineau's peasant soldiers fled leaving the american volunteers alone in the field and outnumbered they fought valiantly but were forced to retreat to navy island in the niagara river where they were shelled into final surrender after a month's resistance dr Bowton came home shorn of money clothes and health with his hair prematurely white but this tall slender young man had resiliency as well as character within another year he had met and married mary bailey sixteen-year-old daughter of amasa bailey the leading farmer and business man of alps and started a flourishing practice there in the hills By this time, Dr. Boughton's boyhood companions on the Helderbergs were in open revolt. Charles Bouton was an anti-rent leader in the West Manor, and other Boutons and Boughtons were serving jail sentences for anti-rent disturbances. His neighbors, in Alps, in all the East Manor, bound by the same leases and subject to the same oppressions, seemed to feel that the agitation on the other side of the river was none of their concern— his own sense of justice outraged by stories he heard dr Bouton crossed the hudson to talk with his old friends their testimony convinced him and he came back determined to rouse his people to action i could not stand idle he wrote of his decision and see thousands deprived of their natural and as i conceived social and legal rights While Mary, the doctor's pretty wife, went about her housework and took care of their baby son, he was calling meetings in all the East Manor towns. This was men's business, in which she had neither interest nor part, though she was gratified to see her husband becoming so prominent in the county. He spoke at as many meetings as he could, developing an eloquence he never knew he had. Though in conversation he was soft-spoken and reserved, on the platform his blue eyes flashed and his speech became magnetic and persuasive his scorching attacks on the despotism of patronery were heard at huskings and raisings and at the horse-swapping conventions that brought farmers from miles around to martin's tavern at Hogs corners boughton knew very well that the only hope was to weld the tenants of all rensselaer wick into a solid organization pledged never to pay rents again with this in mind he crossed the river frequently to consult west manor leaders and speak at their meetings in his own county he met often with burton a thomas of west sand lake and still another doctor rufus s Waite of grafton who helped him lay plans for the permanent organization in order to devote full energies to the cause burton thomas forsook the democratic party in which he was a power Dr. Waite risked his position as one of the most influential men in Grafton, the rocky Lake Pock township straddling the divide between the Hudson and the Hoosick River. Having come up the East Slope from Petersburg in 1819, when he was twenty-two, and settled in Grafton as the town's first physician, Waite could have lived prosperously as a satellite of the Van Rensselaer's, yet he chose to stand with his neighbors. With the most intelligent men in Rensselaerwick committed to anti-rentism, and the groundwork thus laid for effective resistance, all that was needed was the fire and vision of a real organizer. In June of 1842 the right man came to the Helderbergs, drawn by his interest in the struggle. He was Thomas Ainge de Vere, an Irishman with a revolutionary history long enough to fit him for the work that fate wanted of him. Like the eloquent doctor of Alps, de Vere had been acquainted with poverty and landlord oppression from his earliest days. He was born in Donegal, Ireland in 1805, at a period when British misrule was at its worst. Conditions all around him might have made him a criminal. Instead, they moulded a philosopher and a reformer. When he was thirty-one, he formulated his social theories in a small pamphlet he called Our Natural Rights, in which he vividly traced the growth of his ideas. I saw, he wrote, that the earth, if vigorously tilled, would yield plenty of the comforts of life. I saw that there was an abundance of willing nerve and sinew. Willing labor and fertile soil should produce plenty to eat, drink, and wear that this plenty did not exist was sufficient proof that there was something wrong in the relation between that labor and that soil he pointed out that the people were being crushed between an economy of land monopoly on the one hand and a growing industrial economy on the other the theft of man's natural birthright of land had driven the masses to london liverpool glasgow to huddle like sheep in bedless rooms and forced their children to work endless hours until they collapsed from exhaustion. In De Vere's agrarian utopia there could be no such exploitation, no power of coercion, and no poverty, for man would have land of his own to fall back on, and enough of the fruits of his industry to live, so that he could at last defy the employer-oppressor's ultimatum of work for me at my price or starve." soon after publishing the pamphlet de vere left donegal for london where he wrote for liberal papers in successive posts he attacked irish landlordism and vigorously supported the canadian patriots war but each time ran into political opposition when a group of working-class agitators in newcastle upon tyne asked him to join them de vere was glad to leave london that great social wen where he had seen millions thrown into deep and filthy mud to scramble for a mouthful of the polluted life supply that london offers the newcastle group were chartists proponents of the national or people's charter which advocated universal manhood suffrage abolition of property qualifications for voting the secret ballot equal electoral districts a new parliament every year and payment for members of the house of commons as editor of the northern liberator and secretary of the northern political union the wiry irishman worked with the inner circle of reformers that included such men as john collins and fergus o'connor his energy was limitless and his talents for writing speaking and organizing were constantly employed though newcastle soon bristled with soldiers and the mayor banned seditious meetings de vere rose at a large public gathering of workingmen and reformers and made a stirring appeal to the middle classes to side with the workers against the aristocracy in order to avoid bloodshed future ages would recognize their responsibility he said if they failed to accomplish the needed reforms by peaceful measures after the rally when the more impetuous reformers marched through the streets carrying banners bent on challenging the military devere was in front begging the marchers to turn back it is not riot we want he shouted but revolution his pleas went unheeded the forces clashed and about twenty of the leaders were seized the next day thomas devere was indicted arrested for sedition and taken before lord denman you are committing not only a crime but a folly said the magistrate in assuming that the mass could govern instead of being governed devere asked if he might reply certainly said denman freedom of speech is the glory of england the privilege of englishmen in proof of which snapped De Vere, i and my fellow prisoners stand here in the dock it is a glorious sunset streaming through that gothic window Did your lordship ever hear of a great country lying away in the direction of the setting sun? Did you hear that its people did assume to govern themselves, actually to do the very thing your lordship informs us cannot be done? And surely your lordship will not pronounce Englishmen less capable of governing themselves than Americans? Are your lordship's countrymen less intelligent, less trustworthy, than those denizens of the mountains and the forests? Taken aback, the magistrate ordered de Vere to a cell, where he joined his fellow Chartists in singing, the Marseillaise, and American star, anything but God save the Queen. In mid-December of 1839, Chartist delegates from all over northern England met with their leaders, temporarily released, and fixed January twelfth, 1840, for a simultaneous uprising to seize the government. In Newcastle, meetings were continuous for the next two weeks, as final plans were perfected, and firearms and explosives collected. In De Vere's own chambers, busy fingers made the graduated fuses for grenades to be thrown from the ranks, from roofs, and from windows. Old cannon were reconditioned for service. Men from the towns of Winletown and Swalwall were to furnish the shells on the night of january eleventh men came one by one walking quickly up the dark stairway to the secret meeting-place the men of Winleyton came but without the shells for they could find no furnace for casting of seven hundred men secretly pledged only seventy appeared then came the news that preparations in sheffield bradford and other towns had been equally inadequate leaders had been arrested and the government had full knowledge of the scope of the plan devere still under indictment walked across the tyne bridge as if for a customary evening stroll from the hills beyond the town he cast a last look backward when government men reached the docks the independence was under full sail and devere and his wife were on their way to america the winter voyage was long and cheerless storms rattled down the yards and rigging but at last land clouds rose ahead and the low white sandy coast of long island showed above the waves a yankee pilot climbed aboard to ease the ship to its moorings and thomas de vere with a sixpence in his pocket stepped into the new world the united states he found was not the paradise of plenty he had seen through the romantic haze of distance for the country was still struggling out of the depression that had troubled martin van buren's presidency the devirs took quarters in williamsburg king's county where for some weeks they endured trial which words cannot describe night after night thomas returned to a dinner of indian meal and molasses after a vain search for employment any employment i would have worked at pick spade or anything he said at last in the middle of april he got a foothold he was offered the editorship of the williamsburg democrat which was being launched to oppose the whig star he thought he was joining the party of jeffersonian democracy when he accepted the post and he plunged into the campaign to re-elect van buren with his usual vigor and asperity within three weeks of his arrival in america he was an accepted democratic spokesman ably exchanging volleys with horace greeley's campaign paper the log cabin he scorned greeley's exhibition of stuffed owls coonskins toy cider barrels and miniature log cabins as a spurious vote-getting device and for his own paper he wrote solid jeffersonian doctrine confident that the democrats were the embodiment of pure virtue even governor seward drew de vere's criticism because he was running for re-election against a democrat there was irony in that for william h seward was the one american politician who should have aroused his admiration the only one who pleaded the cause of the farmers against the landed aristocracy de vere did not know of the existence of patroonery in america although some of the most spirited passages in Our Natural Rights were those warning the new world against the rampant tyranny, the slavery, and the wretchedness engendered by land monopoly. When elections were over and Van Buren had lost, the Democrats proposed to send De Vere to Washington to continue his editorial work in their behalf. At first he was elated, seeing a chance to make a comfortable fortune and wield great influence but he had begun to suspect that the Democrats were not all that their name implied, and that the old abuses were not confined to England. Away with all ambition that has not for its object the welfare of the human race, he wrote firmly. Instead of going to Washington, he turned the Williamsburg Democrat into a truly democratic paper, and began to agitate for railroads built and owned by the people, laws restricting wealth freedom of the public lands to actual settlers, and limitations on landholdings. When the Democrats protested that these reforms were not democratic because they had not been sanctioned by the party, De Vere said the party should adopt them or change its name. As an answer, the political advertising was promptly taken away from the Democrat, and Thomas De Vere was read out of the party councils. At this juncture, disillusioned and disheartened, De Vere happened upon a copy of the "Helderberg Advocate," edited and published in Schoharie Township by William h Gallup. The paper was the successor of "The Huge Paw," an eighteen forty campaign weekly, so called in honor of the log cabin hero's legendary horny hands of toil. By request of West Manor farmers and their neighbors on Colonel Jacob Livingston's tract in Schoharie county, Gallup had continued publication after election day, turning the paper into an anti-rent organ that was doing much to combat the discouragement resulting from Governor Seward's inability to force through the legislation in their favor. As soon as De Vere read William Gallup's anathemas against the monster system of petrunery, he felt at home once more. Eagerly he joined the anti-rent fight, and from new york city began to send articles denouncing the vestiges of feudalism encouraging resistance citing european parallels and above all calling for freedom of the public lands to settlers in the summer of eighteen forty two as a result he received an invitation to address a great independence day rally of tenant farmers at rensselaerville in the helderbergs Toward the end of June, de Vere arrived in Albany by steamer, as buoyant as a boy. He was returning to his old, unfinished war, anxious to join his fellow-soldiers on the battlefield. It took seven hours to make the twenty-five-mile trip to Rensselaerville by stage, but he did not find it tedious. At Clarksville, down and under the hill, as the hilltop farmers called the village, the riders got out and walked up the steep winding trail where two and a half years earlier sheriff archer's army had climbed to meet the farmers on top of the mountain waiting for the coach to labor up the trail at a snail's pace devere gazed in awe at the expanse of farms below with the adirondacks the berkshires and the green mountains in the distance farther up in the helderbergs at reedsville while the horses drank at the watering trough de vere looked over the ground where archer had been repulsed and felt that it was almost hallowed when the stage deposited him at rensselaerville he met his new friends for the first time the days that followed were full of anti-rent talk as he visited from farm to farm and appeared at local meetings the farmers liked de vere's warm heart his simple habits and his courage but more they welcomed a man who understood that their position was insulting not merely to themselves but to the majesty of the american people and their struggle was a natural extension of the revolution his attitude gave their cause a dignity which they sometimes found it hard to maintain in the face of the van rensselaer arrogance and yet at heart he was one of them speaking of our country and our descendants one of the first to recognize Devere's value to the cause was Dr. Smith A. Boughton, who came over from Alps to meet him. The two men warmed to each other immediately. Both had participated in revolutions that had failed, and were resolved not to let the anti-rent rebellion collapse for similar lack of organization and plan. Boughton, the soft-spoken, even-tempered humanitarian, Realized for the first time, in talking with the burning Irish radical, that anti rentism was more than a local issue. De Vere convinced him that it was part of a broad reform movement in America, and that in order to enlist the support of urban workers, the farmers would have to agitate also for freedom of the vast public domain to settlers. By the morning of July fourth, local anti renters had built a platform for the speakers and Rensselaerville was swarming with farmers who had come by wagon, by buggy, and horseback from all over Albany, Rensselaer, and Schoharie counties. This kind of rally was Thomas de Vere's forte, and one can imagine the delight with which the farmers greeted his spirited answer to the argument that leases were contracts between man and man, and therefore immune to legislation. A legal technicality, he pronounced it, and quoted jefferson in his own support the immortal author of the declaration of independence has left us his opinion that the present generation is entitled only to the usufruct of of the earth and that they are bound to leave it free for the use of the generation that is to succeed them those who please to invert the laws of nature and adopt the doctrine of the thick-headed dutch company are of course at full liberty to do so but for my part i cling to the law which is stamped upon creation and i have more respect for the least sentence that ever fell from the pen of thomas jefferson than for all the dirty greasy tobacco dyed parchments that ever chronicled the wisdom of the big breached sages of old amsterdam if you will permit unprincipled and ambitious men to monopolize the soil they will become masters of the country in the certain order of cause and effect Holding in their hands the storehouse of food, they will make man's physical necessities subdue his love of freedom. They will flood the halls of legislation sent there by their despondent tenants. Then rapacity and wrong will assume all the due forms of law and order. Then our unhappy descendants will be coerced, enslaved, famished to death. Then resistance to the oppression will be stigmatized as a crime against lawful authority then our country will career down the steeps of wealth vice corruption barbarism at last moved though his listeners must have been by the sincerity of the quick-tempered bushy-browed irishman the farmers could not go all the way with him the majority politically conservative had been roused to radical action only by the pressure of their own bondage some were reluctant to dispute the landlord's title they were willing to pay rent, but they wanted to pay it in cash rather than in wheat. Although sympathetic to de Vere's program, the anti-renters in general were not ready for the national crusade, he saw as the logical outgrowth of their cause. Despite reservations, however, the farmers signed a pact with Thomas Eng de Vere that day, little more than two years after his abandonment of the Chartist Revolution, they to help me free the public lands to actual settlers only i to aid them in their local war write attend their conventions and made the conditions that i should pay my own expenses it was not the whole-hearted pledge of unity he wanted and obviously he was promising more than they but if he had to make some concessions to the conservatives in this instance he and dr bouton recovered lost ground when they helped draw up the statement of grievances and proposed redress the radical imprint was plain upon it and it minced no words the statement reiterated that the tenants were under an unequal ratio of taxation they paying all and the landlord none it was illegal as well as immoral for the lessor to have the power to collect rents while the lessee had no power to contest that right The system had an improper bearing on elections, because fear of oppression led the tenants to concur in their landlords' political views. Not only were the titles to the large estates illegal, but the leases that bound the tenants were unconstitutional, since they contradicted the fundamental tenets of Republican government. The tenants asked for a constitutional amendment to end the leasehold system, pledged themselves to pay no rent until relief was secured, and committed themselves to a ten-year war if necessary. This plain-spoken declaration brought new life to the anti-rent movement. With Dr. Smith A. Boughton as their accepted leader, more and more farmers joined, and the circulation of the Helderberg advocate increased rapidly throughout the Manor Counties. As de Vere's influence grew, his barbed pen and realistic call for united farmer-labor action against inhuman oppressors aroused the concern of political strategists, especially among the Democrats who still retained the farm vote. When de Vere climbed the Helderberg escarpment again in October 1842 to urge the farmers to use the ballot against any man who refused to promise support, the Democrats found him too dangerous to be countenanced any longer. Under threat of losing political patronage, William Gallup was ordered to stop publishing articles from Devere's pen. Gallup was defiant at first, but was finally obliged to surrender when a Schoharie grand jury of twelve patriotic citizens called for the suppression of the Helderberg advocate for sedition. End of section four. Recording by Maria Casper.